Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome. Isn't it lovely to have another sunny day? I mean, it's kind of amazing. Here we are, and not too blustery, though it was promised it was blustery. Welcome, Zoomies. It's always lovely to know that there's like another portal into another world where some of you are sitting and worshipping with us. So welcome to you today as well. My name's Liz Gray, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it's lovely, lovely to be worshipping together. Thank you to Tammy especially for her thoughtful introduction just now and to Joy in the Waiting, which is our theme for this morning. And so even as we're thinking about um, waiting and Joy in the Waiting, <laughs> this is my granddaughter, by the way, so everyone say, hello, Edith, hi, you can be here, she's fine, she's not a problem. If she gets a problem, I'll let you know. <laughs> but thank you to Tammy as well for just pointing out all the lovely ways that joy occurs in Scripture. What a lovely summary it is. And it's so good to hold on to these moments of joy, even as we are waiting. And so I wonder what all of you have been waiting for. I've been waiting for our family to start arriving, and they started arriving yesterday. This is the first installment, and um, it's four years since they've been able to be here. And because uh, two years ago, of course, was COVID. And so last time Adam and Haley were here, there was no Edith or Oscar. So four years changes things quite significantly. So it's lovely to have them here. We're waiting for two more weeks being outside before we go inside. I mean, if it's like this, it doesn't feel bad out here, but it might get worse. We're waiting for Christmas. Of course, we're waiting in two weeks' time and all the joy that we anticipate over that weekend with Amy's ordination as well. So much to anticipate. And a couple of weeks ago when we started the series, Amy did a lovely job of reminding us that even as we are waiting for this first advent, we also always immediately turn and have the second advent at the edge of our thinking. The reminder that even as we wait for the birth of Jesus, where we know exactly how the story is going to play out. It's not going to be any different this year. There's still going to be shepherds and angels and wise men. We're very aware that for the second advent, we have sort of some bare bones. We kind of know roughly what's going to happen. We're aware that Jesus is going to come back. And, but it's a bit more like waiting for, I don't know, the trilogy of the Lord of the Rings, where you kind of know what's going to happen, but you don't know how they're going to make it into a movie. And so we're waiting that this chapter will be complete and a new and stunning, unimaginable renewal of all things will come when Jesus comes back again. We know that it'll be good and that Jesus will reign and that all evil will be finally vanquished and God's rule will be absolute. But even as I glibly use words like evil and vanquish, there's a bit of a problem because as we think about the second coming, there's always this sense of discomfort. It doesn't really sound quite as fun as the nativity scenes. Perhaps the word which comes to mind is apocalyptic, and that brings to mind all the disaster movies we've ever seen. But actually, apocalypse is just a word which means unveiling, an offering of a glimpse into the reality of the unseen. And so today I'm just going to take a few minutes to look at some of that language which was used in the reading from Zephaniah, which we heard Becky read just now. She read the beautiful section towards the end of chapter 3 where you have this warrior 
holding his children or child and singing over them exultantly. And to be honest, in terms of the book of Zephaniah, those are probably the verses you're most familiar with. They're beautiful. But we need to listen to them in context. Because although they sound rather lovely, the context is definitely less lovely. You're welcome to look it up on your um, Bibles, on your phones if you want to. But at the beginning of chapter 1, it starts off with the Lord saying, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. In verse 10, on that day, says the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hill. Later on, it says the great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The warrior cries aloud there. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring such distress upon people that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Somehow less attractive. I mean, the picture of the, the warrior singing over his baby, that was kind of nice. But this bit isn't quite so nice. It's, it's violent and horrible. But it's a picture that the Lord will come back and bring judgment. And Zephaniah is unsparing as a way he talks about why the people deserve judgment. He talks about the fact that it's God's people who are actually in trouble in this, in this prophecy. They're the ones who have been tarnishing God's reputation with the neighbors. He carries on in no uncertain terms that it's their collective behavior which is making them unseemly and unattractive. But like most prophecies in the Old Testament, it is multi-layered. He's very much addressing the people at the time who are before him. But as we read it and as we read and see the apocalyptic nature of it, we see an unveiling, too, of this truth of what it'll be like when God comes again. Because this talks, too, of final battles, final cleansings, final dealings God will do with the world. This is also a message about the second advent. And to be honest, the crimes that Zephaniah kind of puts to about his people of the time about God's people being unfaithful to him, we can kind of sadly recognize. This is a message for insiders, not outsiders. It's, it's for people who are actually saying that they believe in God. And as Tammy referenced earlier, we recognize that the church universal does not always bring honor to God's name. We know and read and see the ways we collectively have got things wrong. Fallen leaders, broken systems, abuse, misuse. And that, of course, is again pointing the fingers often at other people. But what about inside ourselves, our personal missteps, our poor choices, our sin, our willingness to compromise with our bodies, minds, and hearts? And Zephaniah articulates without mincing his words that the second coming of the Lord will be a time of judgment for all the poor choices of all the people, including God's own. God was coming to clean up Judah, and then his judgment was going to extend, is going to extend over the whole earth. God, the mighty warrior, coming with purging fury and a blazing theophany, 
Jesus' return will break and change all our preconceptions, unlike anything we have ever seen or known. And Zephaniah's audience would have kind of got this image of a warrior king. They were used to kings being warriors. Kings actually had to be warriors because they were always, it was really important that they could defend the borders. It was really important that they could be impressive in the situation of their neighborhood, of their neighbors. It was very important that the king was a warrior. But what is lovely is the way that Zephaniah goes on and he talks in a way which other prophets don't, apart perhaps from Isaiah a little bit. He talks about this great warrior with such tenderness. This warrior will fight sin and evil and all that is wrong and he will judge his people. But he will also amazingly be set to rescue them. He's going to make his home amongst them. Yes, he is a king with power, but he's a warrior who will punish sin, but he's there aiming to rescue people. In verse 14, it starts off and says, So people rejoice, sing aloud, shout, rejoice and exult with all your hearts, because you are the daughters of the king, children of this warrior. And that is a matter of rejoicing. It goes on in verse 15 to say, The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has turned away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst, and you shall fear disaster no more. The king is going to offer his protection. He's going to cancel debts, remove obligations, turn away enemies. This warrior king is the Lord, our God, the Lord we worship. And so, as it says in verse 16, it says, Don't be afraid. Don't let your hands grow weak. Don't grow limp. It's going to be okay. Because the Lord your God is in your midst, a warrior who gives victory. And he will rejoice over you with gladness, renew you in his love, and exult over you with loud singing as on a day of festival. God is so delighted with his people. He croons over them. And it's got far from a lullaby. There's something so extraordinary about this image of a warrior, maybe with his sword strapped to his side and armor on, singing over a child. There's judgment, but linked with mercy. And so God, as Zephaniah concludes, gathers and rescues and gives honor and praise to his people. Where we have been scattered, he will draw together. And so today, this is the promise that we hold on to, even as we see violence and, violence and brokenness and all that is wrong around us. We have the reminder that God is a God of judgment who will avenge and conquer. Evil will be dealt with, and this will be painful. But he will do so with tender love and rescue on his mind. So as we anticipate the second advent, we do so with this message of joy. But as we pay attention to it, you might also be aware of, first, your confidence in this truth, but also some of the other emotions that come up, the sort of shadow beliefs that we hold. Because as we have some confidence in this, perhaps there might be moments when you also wrestle with some shame, with some fear, with some doubt, with some dread. And so our joy in the waiting may be tempered by a whole host of other feelings and beliefs as we recognize where we have failed and where we lack confidence in God's goodness. And so also, as Tammy so beautifully reminded us, we acknowledge that there is pain and fear in the waiting. And also that warriors are warriors because 
there is injustice and there is oppression. Two weeks ago on Advent One, Michelle reminded us that we look for hope within the context of recognizing hopelessness and despair. And then Chrissy last week talked about the way that finding peace happens in the context of chaos. And today, as Tammy pointed out, joy comes amidst the knowledge of grief. And so this image of the warrior who pauses maybe before or during battle and recognizes that there is war around him. But this is also a moment for rejoicing, a moment where you can find some joy. And as Paul wrote in Philippians, we can be deliberate about seeking joy even when grief or fear is a dominant emotion. And today I urge you to do just that. Don't ignore your pain, don't minimize your grief, but also find ways to look for moments through the cracks to find the joy and hope and peace. I know for many of you that you're going through all sorts of trials at the moment, at work and in your families and in your personal lives. This is not a glib promise of kind of a joy which isn't quite there. It's a joy which you can find in the midst. And so I always like to remind us of our three words of worship, welcome, and wonder. And today I would say, let us remember that when we welcome people, we welcome people who come in the midst of their own stories, their own battles, their own wars. They come with places where they are struggling with their shadow beliefs, places where they are not confident about who God is or who they are. And so as we welcome, we do so with, not with violence, but with compassion, with, not with condemnation, but with hope. We look for people who are rejected and marginalized, people who do not know that there is a God who loves them, a God who wants to croon over them with joy. We look to wonder at the world that God has put us in and to look to be conscious of the fact that there are joy moments around us. And ultimately, I love this image of a God who does worship with wild and ebullient joy. How lovely to have a God who will sing with loudness. It's the boisterous wildness of it, which is so glorious. And he does it over you today. As I finish, I want to read again those verses from Philippians. And you might want to close your eyes, maybe even open your hands, just to recognize the opportunity that there is for joy. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone, because the Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Keep on doing the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. And I will add the God of peace, but also the God of hope and the God of joy. As we prepare to sing once more, um, there is a basket of uh, cloth, strips of cloth at the back there. And either now or as we sing or any time between now and the end of the service, you're welcome to take one and tie it onto the fence. 
as an acknowledgement that you are in a moment of hoping or looking for peace or looking for joy and a confidence that God is with you in that.